Good morning, ladies. It's so good to see all of you here today. My name is Tina, and I am recording this message for Trish Knox, who gave this message to Insight for Women at the opening coffee on September 3rd. And this is a story that she started out with. It's a story about the funeral of a dead church. A new pastor in a small Oklahoma town spent the first four days making personal visits to each of the members, inviting them to come to his first services. The following Sunday, the church was all but empty. Accordingly, the pastor noticed, placed notice in the local papers stating that because the church was dead, it was everybody's duty to give it a decent Christian burial. The funeral will be held the following Sunday afternoon, the notice said. Morbidly curious, a large crowd turned out for the, quotes, funeral. In front of the pulpit, they saw a large closed coffin. It was smothered in flowers. After the pastor delivered the eulogy, he opened the coffin and he invited his congregation to come on forward and pay their final respects to that dead church. Finally, with curiosity, as to what they might expect and represented the corpse in of a dead church, all the people lined up eagerly to look into the coffin. Each, quotes, mourner peeped into that coffin and then quickly turned away with a guilty, sheepish look, for in that coffin, tilted at just the right angle, was a very large mirror. Well, ladies, as we can say, the John is talking to his people to prevent a very dead church. This first semester, we will begin a study in the book of James, then 1 John, and we will finish with 2 John. Considering the lessons we have learned this year about how abruptly our plans can change, I will, I will say we will proceed with our study, Lord willing, and trust him for that outcome. The book of James was written in circa 40, 44 to 49 AD, before the first council of Jerusalem in AD 50, making it the earliest book in the New Testament. It was written by James, the oldest half-brother of Jesus. Mark 6 verse 3 lists Jesus' half-siblings, four brothers who are listed by name and also sisters who are not. John 7, verses 3 to 5, tells us that Jesus' brothers were originally rejected him. They rejected him as a Messiah, and they did not become believers until after the resurrection, three years after Jesus' ministry began. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it says that Jesus appeared to James and then to all the apostles. In Acts 1, verse 14, it lists James with those who went back to Jerusalem after the resurrection, including his mother and his brothers, and they stayed in the upper room, all with one mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer. They were waiting for the anointing of the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost. Galatians 2.9 calls James a pillar of the Jerusalem church, along with Peter and John. According to the first century Jewish historian Josephus, James was also known as James the Just because of his devotion to the righteousness he was murdered in 62 AD. 
James directed his writings to Jewish Christians, those who were scattered among all the nations, most likely because of the stoning of Stephen and the persecution under Herod Agrippa I. They were certainly going through trials. He refers to them as brethren 15 times. That name was common among the first Jew century Jews. In chapter 2, verse 2, the text used the word assembly, which means synagogue. There are 53 Old Testament references. The book is very Jewish in content. The question is, if Gentiles don't have to keep the law, and they don't, then how does this affect Jews who were raised by the law? The Jews were so ingrained in the Mosaic Law and its system of works that without a legal code, does their Christian faith affect how they live? Now free to do as they please, does it matter how they live? Under authority of Christ, James says, yes, our faith applies to everything in life. Many, faith, many people consider themselves Christians and are certain they have salvation. But are they certain they have salvation? But they do not. The Bible teaches that our faith should be tested to determine if it's genuine. Also, James tells us in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The testing of faith and salvation is a biblical concept called for throughout Scripture. Psalm 26, 2 Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. Lamentations 3.40 Let us examine and probe our ways, and let us return to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. These verses are just a few. In the epistle of James, a series of tests is given to determine if our salvation is true. That our faith is not shallow and just exterior behavior without any evidence of a transformed lifestyle. James describes the overall traits of the faith walk. He discusses social justice and a discourse on faith in action. He compares and contrasts the difference between the worldly and the godly wisdom and asks us to turn away from evil and draw close to God. It is a practical book with not much doctrine. He focuses on the truths of, Je of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount and motivates us to act upon what Jesus taught. There are more than 20 allusions to the Sermon on the Mount. In that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus proposed a series of tests to those who were in Israel, who believed they were right with God, but they were not. James was writing to Jews to encourage them to continue growing in this new Christian faith. He emphasizes good actions and will naturally, he emphasizes that good actions will unnaturally flow from those who are filled with the Spirit and questions whether someone may or may not have a saving faith if the fruits of the Spirit cannot be seen. 
The book of James is the ultimate description in the relationship between faith and works. While Paul taught justification before God, James is teaching justification before men. He basically challenges Christians to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. And he puts to rest the idea that one can become a Christian and yet continue living in sin, exhibiting no fruit of righteousness in their lives at all. James' James teaching complements Paul's teaching on faith in Galatians 2.16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, James emphasizes that good works flow from those who are filled with the Spirit. Good works are the fruit of the Spirit, not the cause of salvation, but a result of salvation. Can we pass the test? 1 John is an epistle. The word epistle in the Greek means letter or message. They were a primary form of communication in the ancient world and usually had an introduction, a greeting, or a concluding salutation. 1 John does not, but in its tone and content, epistle still applies. At the time, John was living in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was the spiritual center of Asia Minor, today's modern Turkey. This letter is a general epistle written by John to the churches of Asia Minor in approximately 85 to 95 AD. He was advanced and aged, the last living apostle, and he was very active in the ministry to the churches in that area. He was the only remaining person who had an intimate eyewitness knowledge of Jesus and his teachings, which gave him great authority in the churches. John wrote three epistles, which he most likely composed around the same time. First John is the longest letter. We will be studying all three letters. I love what John MacArthur says about John the man. This black and white dogmatic, exclusive, absolute, authoritative apostle. His epistles provided for us a powerful message for a compromising, convictionless, open-minded, permissive, and liberal-thinking church. He's really the perfect writer to address the church today. The Apostle Paul had founded the church in Ephesus, and in Acts 20, verses 29 to 30, Paul tells them, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw you away, and to draw away all the disciples after them. That prophecy, given by Paul, is now being fulfilled. And John writes his epistles to warn the brethren and combat the heresies infiltrating the churches. These false teachers were questioning the fundamentals of the Christian faith and bringing in heresies known as Gnosticism. Now Gnosticism held that matter is evil and spirit is good and the solution between the two was elevated knowledge. Only those who were on the in on the deeper things, had this spiritual knowledge. 
Through knowledge, man arose from everyday mundane to the spiritual. They believed that sin committed in the body had no connection or effect on one's spirit. So, indulge in immorality. It was permissible. They had two false theories about Christ. Their error began with the person of Jesus Christ. False teachers always want to teach a false Christ because if you believe a false Christ, you can't be saved. One theory is docetism, from which the Greek we get the Greek word to seem. They said that Christ was God, but he only seemed to have a body, and since matter is evil, they regarded the human Jesus as a ghost. If Jesus wasn't God in human flesh, then there is a denial of the substitutionary atonement. If you don't have Jesus as a man, you don't have a substitute. So therefore, you don't have a salvation. The other heresy was called Serenthianism. It denied that God made the physical world that Christ descended upon Jesus at baptism and guided him in his ministry and performing miracles. Christ left him at, at crucifixion and that Jesus was not born of a virgin, but of a natural son of Mary and Joseph. Between the two theories, they made Jesus a dual personality. At times he was human, and at other times he was divine. They wanted to include themselves with those considered genuine believers. They wanted inclusiveness. We can see why that might be a problem. They were a big problem in the early church. John's letter is about the basics of faith in Christ. As the last living apostle, it is his duty and responsibility to confront the error with truth. The truth of the word of life. God's truth. John wants the flock to recognize the truth and to recognize error. So John, as he writes this epistle, exposes the faults and reveals the truth. From this letter, we find out whether we're really Christians. We will see the black and the white, absolute realities of what, need, what meet, it means to be a real Christian. Throughout this epistle, there is certainty. The word no is said 36 times. By this we know, not we think, not we hope, not we wish, not we feel, but now we know. Second John. John most likely wrote this epistle at the same time he wrote First John, or at least soon after. Second and Third John are the shortest epistles in the New Testament. Each contains less than 300 Greek words on one sheet of papyrus. Second John is written to the chosen lady and her children from the elder. In this letter, John is dealing with the same problem he dealt with in 1 John. While 1 John is a general epistle, 2 John is written to a specific local group of Christians. John is very anxious that true believers should be aware of these false teachers and have nothing to do with them, not even receive them into their home or even give them a greeting. 
He tells them to beware of an Antichrist deceivers and to walk in Christ's commandments. It's a wonderful letter. Back to the basics. Basics of Christianity rooted in truth. How blessed we are to have God's worth to show us his truth. Second semester, we will be praying, we will be studying 3 John, Joshua, and Philemon. How exciting it is to get back to our studies, our friendships, and our fellowships. What a wonderful God we serve. Let us pray.